reading of his word. Before our sermon this morning, uh, I want to talk a little bit about some plans that we have for the fall. Um, You know, the last couple of years have definitely been different. Uh, I don't think anyone could agree with that statement. Uh, There are things that were a regular part of the rhythm of the life of our church that went on hold for a period of time. And as we came back together, uh, some of those things were reintroduced. We reimagined some of the way that we do things. Uh, Our order of service changed a little bit. Um, And there were intentional thoughts and reasons behind doing some of the things that we've done. As we, uh, you know, kind of transition into different eras in our church uh, life, we, we, we make changes. We do things differently, and we do them for the reasons that we do them, the, the reasons being that we think they'll be beneficial to the church, to the growth of the church, and the life of the church. One of the things that we have not done consistently for the last couple of years is our Wednesday evening breaking bread meal. Uh, and we are bringing that back this fall. Uh, we, we have talked about it uh, in the eldership, in, in our minister meetings. Um, we've discussed it. It's something that we want to see come back. We think it's beneficial to the life of the congregation. It can be difficult to make it to Wednesday evening class if you also have to prepare a meal for your kids in the three and a half minutes you have between work and evening service on Wednesday night. Um, and so we want to make sure that you're fed. We want to make sure your kids are fed. But we also want to make sure that we are feeding our community. Um, I don't know if you've talked to people about our church before. Oftentimes people drive by and they don't necessarily see us, but if you you start talking about where we're located, they, oh, you're the church that did the breakfast, or you're the church that did the Wednesday night meal. Those are things that our community remembers about our identity as a congregation. In fact, they're goodwill with our neighbors in a lot of ways. Uh, The folks across the street, uh, when a few of them stopped in for our cooling shelter, uh, the thing that they remembered was that we served a Wednesday night meal. And um, that's something that we value. We want our community to know us as a a people that will feed them, uh, and ideally more than just food. Uh, And so we're bringing back our Wednesday night meal, uh, and we need cook teams There's going to be an announcement about this again at the end of service, so if you've zoned me out already, that's okay. You're going to get it when John shares it. But there is a sign-up sheet at the back of the auditorium. Sometimes preparing a big meal for a large group of people can be a little burdensome and people get burned out on it. We don't want that to happen, and so we're looking for 10 to 12 cook teams to be able to have a, a kind of whole quarter covered. You'd only have to cook maybe three or four times a year, depending on the number of people that we have. Uh, There is a sign-up sheet in the back of the auditorium. If you are even a little bit interested in doing one meal a quarter uh, for the congregation, something as simple as a large pot of spaghetti uh, and some salad, you know, that that can be really easy and straightforward. Uh, And you can get as complicated as you want. If you want to do a full six-course meal probably need to start on Tuesday in order to get that done, but we'd be, we'd be happy to have you do that. And so um, this is a way that we serve the body here, but also a way that we can serve the, co- the community that we're a part of. Uh, there are a lot of people that benefit from that meal, and there's a lot of conversations that happen after that meal that are tremendously valuable in making disciples of Christ. And so uh, we're bringing it back. Some traditions, uh, they die off, but other traditions are worth holding on to, and we think this is something worth holding on to. So I'd encourage you, after service, if there's even an inkling in your head that that might be something you're interested in, at the back of the auditorium, on the little table on the right-hand side, as you walk out the door, there's a sign-up sheet. Uh, And if you write down your name 
and phone number. You don't even have to commit to what you would cook, but your name and phone number. Uh, we'll get a hold of you and start coordinating that. I believe we're beginning the second Wednesday of September, not the first, but the second Wednesday of September. Um, so that's the little spiel for you this morning. We are just a few more sermons left in this particular series on uh, the Gospel of John, and we have reached what is, uh, by most accounts, the climax of the story. This is the moment in which uh, we, we see Jesus fulfill what he's been telling his disciples he was going to do all the time, that he would die. And of course, we know it doesn't end there, that he would rise again. And in this chapter, John spends a shockingly small amount of time on the details of the death of Jesus, and a significant amount of time on people's statements about who Jesus is, and about Jesus' interactions with a handful of individuals before and after his death. And so this morning, I, I want us to think, yes, absolutely, the crucifixion of Christ is, Christ is a momentous thing. And we could talk about the nails that were driven through his hands. We could talk about the nails driven through his feet. We could talk about the agony of asphyxiation, the, the difficulty in breathing that he would have experienced. All of that are things that we could discuss this morning. But I think we know those details. And John does not dwell on them particularly long. As we read uh, a moment ago, Jesus is still continuing his trial with Pilate. There's this moment, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I wonder if this is you know, Pilate's initial attempt to satisfy the anger and frustration of the Jewish people. If I flog him, maybe that will be enough. As we, as we read, Pilate is actually looking for a way to divest himself of this situation. It would be fantastic if, if it just all sort of resolved itself. I don't want to crucify him. I don't want to try him. You know, I found no guilt with him. But Pilate flogs him. And the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! There's this mockery that occurs here. And the ironic part being that these Jewish soldiers, or non-Jewish soldiers, these Gentile soldiers, are calling him the King of the Jews. They're actually giving him the correct title in many ways and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I've humiliated him. I've, I've caused him trouble. I've hurt him. But I don't find him guilty. Maybe this is the moment in which you will let it go. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Notice he says, behold the man. Now after this moment, Pilate will repeatedly find ways to refer to Jesus as the king. But in this moment, he just calls him the man. Behold the man. Do you see what I've done to him? Do you see the mockery that we've played out here? The, the little joke, the crown of thorns, the torn back. Yeah, he's wearing purple, but this is, you know, this is, a moment of humiliation for him. Behold the man. Is this not enough for you? You know, when you look at the history of the Israelite people, you can go back to uh, the time of the judges in which they don't have a king, and the book continually reminds us that they don't have a king. 
And we get to the stories of the kings, First and Second Samuel and the, the First and Second Kings, these, these books that detail the history of the monarchy of Israel. And it all sort of begins with this idea that they want a king like all the other nations around them. And of course, they're reminded, you, you do technically have a king who is above any king that we might give you. When they demand a king, when they say, we want a king just like all the other nations, the statement that they give is, that's not enough. We want a king. And then they're told, here's what will happen if you have a king. He'll take your sons and your daughters and your land. He will want all of what you have. He will tax you. He will make you slaves. We want a king. And they're reminded that they have not rejected the civil leadership that God has given them when they choose a king. They're not rejecting the prophet. They're not rejecting the high priest. They're not rejecting even the judges that have come before. They are rejecting God himself. And here... In this moment, the crucifixion, we see essentially the history of Israel played out. Whether they know it or not, the dramatic irony of the situation. We're in on the joke. We're in on on the problem. We know what's going on behind the scenes is that they have done what they have always done and rejected God who has wanted to be their king from the beginning. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This inscription above him, and he he writes it in multiple languages. Uh, Everyone that walks by can read this text. If you spoke Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek, you know what this said. And it makes a lot of people really angry. The Jewish leaders ask him, "Could could you change it so that it says he claimed to be a king? He says, I wrote what I wrote. I wrote what I wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In the previous verse, he was just the man. Behold the man in his humiliation. Does this satisfy you? But the crowd demanded that he be crucified. And it's here on the cross, raised up, so that people can fix their eyes on him. He is proclaimed the king. That the title is boldly put above his head. And we've discussed this multiple times as we've gone through the Gospel of John, that for Jesus, being lowered, being humble, being at the feet of his disciples to wash them, is the highest point. In the moment on the cross, he is displaying the full glory of God. In his death, 
he finds the ultimate title. The one that he, he bore the whole time, but it took till this moment for someone to give it to him, to properly identify who he was. Now, we can go to other Gospels and we see where, you know, uh, it's boldly proclaimed by, by his disciples who he is, who they believe him to be. The title Messiah is used multiple times in reference to Jesus, that he's the anointed one. We've had the moments in which people have identified him even in the Gospel of John as the Messiah. But it's here, on the cross, that the title, the King of the Jews, is applied. People have asked the question, are you the king of the Jews, up to this point. But this is the moment in which people finally recognize this is the title of this man. This is his identity. There's no changing it. You don't like the charge. I wrote what I wrote. I don't know what you want to do with that this week. I don't know how you want to approach it. I don't, want to know, don't know how you want to deal with this idea that it's not until the crucifixion that someone properly identifies Jesus as the king of the Jews. But for me, that's been something I'm dwelling on and, and continue to dwell on. I think it's going to inform a lot about how I think about uh, what, what glory and power look like moving forward. But what's interesting to me is that in the moment that Jesus has been properly identified, in the moment of his agony on the cross, as things from an outside perspective look pretty bleak, Jesus centers in on just the most intimate little situation that occurs in front of him. In the other Gospels, we do have interactions between Jesus and the individuals on the cross beside him, but Jesus sees what is in front of him. He has a conversation, a very brief conversation, a very one-sided conversation. There's not a whole lot that happens here other than Jesus' declarative statement. This is it. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, there are several women that are standing here. I've struggled sometimes to tell, is it it four women or three women? And one of the little blurbs is descriptive of the individual because the name's not given. It doesn't really matter, but things that my brain gets caught up on to distract me from the important stuff. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. A lot has been made out of these two verses. Big theological statements throughout history about the identity of Mary and whether or not we should revere her in some specific ways, if, if we should elevate her above all other women uh, based on this text here and that Jesus, in speaking to this unnamed disciple, is speaking to all of us and saying, this is your mother from now on. Those are discussions for another day. Um, what I think the big theological statement here is, is that in the agony of the crucifixion, as Jesus is doing the great work of his life, the thing that he has looked forward to, the suffering he has anticipated, there is still time for the care of others. 
This, to me, is perhaps the most significant little interchange that happens in this chapter. It's important that we recognize that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That is significant. We have to recognize that all of Scripture has built to the point at which that title is given to this man. That is a a significant and important detail. But the thing that I think we sometimes gloss over when we get all caught up in the pain and the agony and the suffering is that we miss what Jesus is doing in that pain and agony and suffering. He's providing pastoral care for his mother and for a disciple who I think in many ways are going to feel very lost in just a few moments. Behold your mother. Behold your son. You're going to need one another. Sometimes I think, you know, we, we get focused on some really good things in our spiritual walk. Big, important, theological things. The, the most important questions in the whole world the identity of God, what he desires from us, how we can best serve him. Those are all things we should ponder. They're things that we should consider for ourselves. They're things that we should lift up. But we should also then look at how Jesus handles the needs of others as he brings about the fulfillment of those big theological questions. Sometimes we want to be so right theologically that we spend a lot of time spinning our wheels, arguing with one another, or arguing with the people in the church building across the way, or arguing with the world about theological details, that we fail to provide care, to recognize need, and offer provision for that. I don't want to downplay the significance of the crucifixion. I I do believe it is the second most important moment in the life of Jesus right next to the resurrection. But what Jesus does in that moment is what he's done throughout the entirety of the gospel. Provide care for the people who are right in front of him. Sometimes we get so caught up in the big picture that we miss what's happening right in front of us. I do it all the time. I'm so busy thinking six months ahead or, or you know, thinking about what the next big event or sermon series or, or class that we're going to do is going to be that I miss what is right in front of me. Most weeks during our staff meeting, when Kyle and Norma and I meet, we close out with a prayer after having made all our plans. We've, we actually need to flip this around because we should pray at the beginning and ask God to give us wisdom and insight to make the plans that we're going to make. I told Norma this a couple weeks ago. It's my fault because I'm the one that orders the meetings. It's nobody else's fault. We make all our plans, and then we get to the end of the meeting, and I do something along the lines of, God, please bless the plans we have made. And, and now that we've made all those plans, God, if there are things that you would have us do, if there are needs that are there, open our eyes. Help us to have our ears open. Help us to be present in the things that are happening around us. Something along those lines. Norma will correct me. She knows what I usually say. What if I began by simply saying, God, help me to have my eyes open to what's right in front of me? First, 
The other things are significant. They're important. But what's most important right now, in this very moment, are the needs that I see in the lives of the people right in front of me. I think that's what we all need to be asking ourselves. What are the needs that God has placed directly in front of us? And how have we, in our big plans, our great theological discussions, missed those needs? And like I said before, I don't know what you want to do with that, but I know I have to do something about it for myself. And I want to encourage you this morning to be thinking, what are the needs that I'm missing around me as I'm so busy thinking about the big ideas of Christianity? Who is it that I'm failing to serve as I argue about theological discussions, as I debate with my brothers and sisters in Christ about what we as a congregation should or should not be doing, about the way that we do class on Sunday morning, or, or whether or not we should you know, have... A, a baptistry inside or the beautiful four-lane baptistry that they're building for us out along the, the side of the church. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that or not. Don and I were having a discussion, and the Matt and I were as well. Uh, we're going to put lanes in there because we think we're going to have a lot of baptisms. We need more lanes in our baptistry. Just don't get the far left because if you do, you might go down the storm drain. Um, there are a lot of things that are worth our discussion. There are a lot of good things that we can talk about, that we can even debate in civil ways as a church. But if in doing so we miss what's happening right in front of us, and we fail to see to the needs of the people that God has placed right in our sight lines, we're not emulating our Savior. If Jesus has the time to provide care for Mary and the disciple whom he loved, in the middle of the crucifixion. I don't think there is any great work in our lives that can't bear the same. And I want to encourage you with that thought this morning. There's one final scene that I want us to discuss uh, because a good friend of ours comes back in this scene, a fellow who's popped up a couple of times in the gospel up to this point. His name is Nicodemus. There's another fellow there, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, it says, after these things, after Jesus has been crucified, after they stab him in the side to verify that he is in fact dead because they're not going to break his legs to make sure that he doesn't wander away when they take him off the cross because his body's not allowed to remain on the cross overnight. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. To tie a bow on what we've discussed this morning, I want to look at what it is that happens with these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. John makes it really clear 
Joseph loved Jesus. He followed him. He was a disciple. That's not a term that you apply to someone who's simply an acquaintance. This is a man who followed the teachings of Jesus, who in fact followed Jesus himself. He did it secretly because of the fear of the Jews, but in burying Jesus and placing him in this tomb, it is a confession of belief in who Jesus is. Nicodemus, in buying these spices, these these preserving spices, these aloes, and bringing them for the preparation of the body of Christ, is stepping out of the shadows and proclaiming his belief that this man was the Messiah. He may not fully understand yet, because the resurrection hasn't happened, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but this is dedication to the man. And this dedication doesn't come simply because they were convicted of theological concerns. It came because they were convicted by the life that Christ had lived. They saw his good works. They heard his teaching. They knew his love for the people that he had encountered. We see this transition specifically in Nicodemus from a searching individual who is curious about Jesus, has questions about big theological things, but it's in the observation of the life of Jesus that Nicodemus moves from a skeptic to a believer. And we don't know what happens to Nicodemus after this. We don't really know what happened to Joseph of Arimathea after this. There are accounts, but we don't know if they're apocryphal or not. Uh, We don't know whether or not they went on to be great figures in the early church. All we know is that in this moment, the life that Jesus had led was enough for them to be dedicated to him even in his death. And I think that if we want to be able to communicate the good news of the gospel to those around us, if we want them to know who Jesus is, we need to communicate those things to them as well. His love and concern for people his presence in the things that are happening right in front of him. That is what convicted them. Again, the resurrection has not happened yet. They don't know the conclusion of the big theological story, but what they know is the man and his works and his teaching and his love. The resurrection lies ahead for all of us. That is something we anticipate fully. People aren't going to get to witness it until... Everyone is raised. But what they can witness about us, our teaching, our works, our love, that's the testimony that we can give to the identity of the Savior that we serve. And if we, if we walk alongside people and dwell with them the way that Jesus dwelt with us, we serve as individuals who usher them towards the resurrection. Maybe we bring them to a dedication to the man so that they have the opportunity to witness the risen king. And so I want to encourage you this week, whatever you do, however you go about living your life, whatever it is that God convicts you of, keep your eyes open to the need that is directly in front of you. Serve that need. The big work of your life lies ahead as well. God has plans for you, but the needs that are in front of you are immediate, 
and urgent. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have neighbors and family members. We have friends. We have enemies who desperately, desperately need something. And God, we would so much like to argue with them about the big theological questions. We would like to beat it into them, the truth, the things that we know to believe, uh, the things we believe and know to be true. But Father, what, what is ultimately convicting, what changes hearts, is seeing the works, the love, and hearing the teaching of your Son. That is what draws people near for them to be able to then witness the resurrection. So, Father, I pray that this week you use us in powerful ways to do small things, to provide care for those who are hurting, lost, alone, and to make sure that those needs are not overlooked. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have needs of the church this morning, if there are ways that we can bless or encourage you, if there are ways that we can walk alongside you, if you have a need that we have overlooked, we want to be aware of that this morning, and we want to provide you the care that we are called to provide you. Um, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. If you, if you want to visit with me, I'd be happy to visit with you. Our elders are here this morning, and they'd be happy to visit with you. We have some ladies here that would be happy to provide some care for you as well. Uh, we're going to invite you to stand as we sing.